Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 180, and today's guest is Andrew Lau, co-founder and CEO of Jellyfish. You've probably heard of the PayPal Mafia on the West Coast. Well, in Boston, you have the Endeka Mafia, where lots of alumni have gone off to start companies like Toast, Salsify, Parallel Wireless, and many others. Andrew is part of this crew, as he joined Endeka in the early days and was part of the team that helped scale the company, which later resulted in an acquisition by Oracle. Andrew's latest company is Jellyfish, the leading engineering management platform, which provides complete visibility into engineering organizations, the work they do, and how they operate. The company announced a $12 million Series A round of funding back in May, which was led by Excel and Wing Venture Capital. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Andrew's decision to study computer science at MIT and how working at a handful of internships really helped shape his career, a deep dive into his experience at Indeca, plus another startup he founded called Loopit, all the details on Jellyfish and how they are enabling the business of engineering, advice to entrepreneurs on idea creation and what is a viable product to build a business around, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, our job board has thousands of jobs listed across all functional areas and all levels of experience, from individual contributor roles to executive level positions. Each job listing has information about the company, its people, and culture, which saves you a ton of time in terms of doing research. Don't put your career on hold. Go to venturefizz.com backslash jobs to start searching. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, great to join. Like It's been a long time, and it's great for us to get back on the horn here. Absolutely is. It's been a very long time, so I was excited to see the, you know some of the details on what you're up to with Jellyfish, so we're going to talk a lot about that, which is super exciting. But uh, to kick things off, you're part of the uh, Indeca alumni, Indeca mafia, however we <laughs> want to phrase it, but it's, uh, it's a crew of very talented people that came together, built a company that was very successful and um, was acquired by Oracle for a very solid amount, especially then, that was an incredible amount. Um, and so many of the alum have gone off to do amazing things. Uh, you know, the, the team at Jellyfish is one of them. We've got Toast and Salsify and Steve Papa's, you know, he's doing parallel wireless still, I think. So, so why do you think the Indeca team has been so unique in their entrepreneurial pursuits after the company and have, you know, built, you know, just kind of, these other, you know, spawn off companies since? I think it's a great question. It's one that I'm actually always uh, curious of. Um, and I definitely have some theories because um, I, I like, look, I, I'm also proud of the crew, right? Um, it's been great to see everybody blossom and do cool things. Um, my theory, I, I think really comes down to two areas that actually has made it happen. And, and um, you know, hopefully we'll find a way to test this at some future point. Um, but I think first and foremost, I think it's about people, right? I don't think it's lost in anybody, but I, you know, the people really matter. I think we grabbed amazing people that were, you know, smart driven folks um, that are just intellectually curious and like just had a great substrate for this, right? And I, I think in general, if you look at the criteria of folks there, I think they're smart driven people and they're also great communicators, right? I think those two things represent kind of a basic way that you can actually start building like hey here you know this is the crew that you can actually build something with the second part of it though i think is unique to indeca um, i mean it's not only unique, but it, but calling out to indeca is that it's it's a very product focused company right and the culture pervaded the company from the early stages right so 
I believe um, when you have a lot of people working for a company, as people leave that company, they kind of pick up the DNA of whatever that company did really well, right? And Indeca, first and foremost, is a product company. And so like we're always inventing things. And I think every junior engineer that came in, every sales engineer, they had the idea of like, okay, let's make something new, right? Um, I think that tone, I think it creates an attitude where you want to actually and can make things, right? And so as they, as people kind of spawn off from those companies, they already have that mindset of like, I want to invent things. And that invention is, I, I think, the core part of the initial key step of entrepreneurship, right? So I think other companies at scale, like they might be really good at marketing or really good at some other function. I think those are definitely necessary for scaled companies, but they aren't necessarily the catalyst for a new company, right? Um, and so I think those things together actually made a great kind of petri dish for us to actually build a good crew of people that actually really kind of hit the hit the Boston area just doing cool things. Yeah, no, it's been an extraordinary uh, group of, of talented folks. Let's talk about your background. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Like what did your parents do for work? Kind of the foundational questions. Yeah, and a good question. Um, so I'm actually not from Boston. Um, I'm a Bay Area native um, in, in Northern California. I grew up in Oakland, um, right across the Bay from San Francisco. And um, I actually got a lot of curious looks from folks when I say that. Um, they're like, wait a minute, you're, 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 you're a tech entrepreneur and you're not in the Bay Area? Um, and, and yeah, like I'm actually backwards for most folks. Folks always go to the barrier. Um, I think I actually came out here in the mid nineties, um, for school and like, basically I got lucky and life happened. Right. Um, and I actually joined the Indeca crew in 99 while I was actually still in the tail of my college program, starting my grad program. Right. Um, and you know, initially came in as just kind of a part-time job and it, it just clicked. Right. Um, and then eventually built a life here and all of these things. And so, um, yeah, like it, it, it's kind of surprising to end up here. I wouldn't have, like, in, if you'd asked me this as I answered college, I never would have guessed I would be here, but it's worked out great, right? Um, and if you map back to your other question, I was like, what was it like as a child? Um, you know, I, I, I think actually you posed this question, made me think a little bit around, like, I probably had some entrepreneurial bone in my body all the way back in the day, right? Like I, you know, little things like I ran, I was thinking about, like I ran the newspaper at high school. I used to do a lot of mountain biking. So I was like, a, you know, ran the mountain biking club. And through that vehicle, we had like swap meets where we'd bring several hundred people and charge them, you know, five bucks admission um, into kind of trade, you know, bike parts. You know, we ran donut sales. I think I, at some point I even like convinced a bunch of uh, companies that made bike parts to be a sales rep for them. I'm um, just like, I get free bike parts. Um, so like, I definitely had that, that flair. And then like through that, I also had that kind of engineering bone in me too. Like, I liked making things. I was, uh, I think, I think my senior project, I fixed my parents' 65 VW bug, right? Um, it's just kind of a thing to just do. So like, I, you know, I'm a, I, I always liked making things. And I think by the time I went to college, I actually thought I wanted to be a product designer, industrial engineer. Um, and I kind of fell into computer stuff by accident in that way, right? It wasn't uh, my initial thought. I thought much more around tangible things was my original thinking on this stuff. So you went to MIT and ended up studying computer science. So I always wonder, like, how do you get into MIT? Like, were you like valedictorian of your class? Like, no, I think actually, this, this, it's a great question. It's kind of a funny story. Um, I, I don't think many people actually say this. I didn't actually have the best grades. Um, and um, I actually applied early. Um, and then I got wait I got pushed to regular admissions. Um, and then, um, I eventually got waitlisted. So I was like, I guess I'm not going there. Right. Um, and so 
I ended up enrolling into UC Berkeley because great school. It's where my parents went, um, great engineering school. So I, I enrolled there. Um, and then I was doing some kind of job, part-time job at the time. And people were convinced me that you got to get away from home. You got to get away from home. Um, so I enrolled into Carnegie Mellon. Um, and so I was in two schools. And then eventually MIT let me in. Um, and so then it's, there was a point in time where I actually enrolled in three schools simultaneously. Um, and I thought like, well, if I'm going to go away from home and, and have to spend a lot of money, then I might as well go to where I originally thought. Um, and so I think it was a, a funny course to actually end up there, but it actually ended up being great for me because I actually ended up there without a lot of pressure, right? Because I didn't have this, like, I was, you know, magically going to get there. It's like, oh, I worked my way there and like, it just took the pressure off and I actually had a lot of fun, which I can't say everyone always does. It's, it's a pretty pressure-filled environment, um, but it ended up being great for me. I enjoyed it a lot. And you had some great internships too. Yeah. Also lucky, right? Um, I ended up, um, like, I actually still do a lot of advising at MIT, and, and I think I'm a big proponent of these folks doing internships of any any form, because I think they give you experiences of what to actually, what you like and what you don't like, but they also build on each other. And so the super lucky thing for me was, like, in high school, I took a summer job um, at a operating system company called Wind River. I think it's now owned by Intel. Um, but they, um, I was in their customer support department building analytics on the number of calls they got on a weekly basis, right? I, it was just a job I got um, through the computer science teacher knew somebody. And um, so by the time I went to MIT, freshman summer, it ended up being that like most freshmen don't get internships, but I stumbled into the job fair and there was a, IBM team that had, was slow on their recruiting and showed up at the last career fair not having hired anybody. And I just happened to be the only person that applied that had previous work experience, right? So then I got the job there. And so then the next summer, then I ended up being the sophomore that actually had an IBM experience. So then that got me into Microsoft. Um, and then I learned along the way how much I liked smaller companies. And so IBM at the time was like 50,000 people and at the time Microsoft was like 10,000 people kind of getting smaller as a company. And um, I ended up doing a startup at the time called Ink to Me. And I mean, even back then, I don't think it was a startup. It was like a 300-person public company because companies went public earlier back then. Um, and I just had a great time doing it. Uh, and um, the funny part of the story is that ended up um, being someone that actually um, at Ink to Me was Dave Gorley. Dave actually hired me to Indeca, and he's actually one of the co-founders of Jellyfish. So it all kind of goes all the way back to yeah, okay. summer of 99. Um, and like, it's, you know, it's a crazy world how these things all fit together. Yeah, because, so Dave was a co-founder of Indeca. Yeah, yeah. And I think he actually met Steve Papa at Ink to Me, because Steve Papa was a product manager at Ink to Me briefly. Um, and so Steve brought Dave out to Boston to do Indeca, and then Dave hired me at Indeca. So it's, it all kind of comes together. Yeah, and Ink to Me was, that was Search too, right? Wasn't yeah, that was, it, it became Yahoo Search, right? Um, Yahoo eventually bought them to run their search engine um, as, as kind of like a Google competitor back in the heyday of Yahoo. Got it. Okay. So I guess that's a, that kind of explains how you got to Indeca. So it, what, yeah. was this, what was the stage of the company then when you joined? I joined when the company was seven people. I was the eighth employee. Wow. I didn't know it was that early. Yeah, it was, uh, I was, you know, I think everybody previous to that, like was closer to network of, of Steve and, like I was like a, the first engineer they hired, right? Um, and um, I came in to actually just do kind of core engineering. Um, and, you know, it was, it, the company didn't have a name. I think it was called, 
I think it was actually called Parallel, right, at the time. Didn't he name it? Was it? I, I remember he had an interview, like, I don't know, Scott Kirshner or something. Wasn't it named after uh, the glasses? Yeah, Steve Martin? Steve, yeah, a Steve Martin movie. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was called Optigrab, right? Optigrab, uh, yes. <laughs> and and um, it was, yeah, like, it wasn't formed as a company. Like, it was formed as a company, but it wasn't, there wasn't a clarity around what the product was, right? I think mm-hmm. Steve had a vision of making e-commerce better, and he definitely visualized in terms of eBay. But it was, it was at the time, like, you know, I was coming out of college or I was still in college and it was hard to kind of, you know, I didn't have the lens to actually think about where it fit into the stack. And I don't think the companies did either, right? I think the e-commerce industry hadn't really developed yet. And so to say that you're a search engine for e-commerce, I think wouldn't have even made sense in that context at that time, right? Um, and so it was, you know, eight folks in a basement in East Cambridge um, and I was coding some C++. Um, and so I ended up like, it was, it was an amazing ride. I learned a ton, right? So I ended up there starting out as an engineer. I ended up doing what I think we'd call pre-sales or sales engineering very quickly. I worked very closely with David and Phil, who I work with now. Um, I ended up spending time doing pro services there and then kind of fell back into engineering management um, and then kind of grew with the company. So Indeco was an incredible experience for me. I was there for almost nine years of my career, which is you know lifetime for, for anybody. But I think the other side of it is the company was doubling year on year. So it was probably like being in seven different companies. Um, and, and in DECA, you know, folks were, I think, I think they're very generous with me. Like I got a lot of chances to try different things. Um, and I think, you know, pe- folks were always looking out for me. And I think I got a great set of experiences there and just met a great group of people um, that I think is, I, I think is the, the, the group you just talked about here. It's the alumni that are starting other companies. They're my co-founders. They're team members that we bring together. Um, and so I think it definitely influenced and shaped my early career. And I think it's, you know, it is my community. Yeah, it was, I mean, they did such a good job of uh, bringing in amazing talent. Like the bar was very high to join in DECA and that bar was always, you know, even as it scaled and grew, the bar was still, you know, super high. Yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, I, I think we, I aspire to build Jellyfish to the point of where DECA got, right? So the company was acquired, like you left before the acquisition, but I just did. for context, it was acquired by Oracle for $1.1 billion in 2011. But, uh, but you left in 2008. And so, so what did you do after Indeca? So I did a, a few things. Um, I ended up um, connecting with the founders of ATG, um, Joe and Jeet, um, and they started a venture incubator called Red Star. Um, and that was just super fun, right? Like I got in there and help them kind of like, you know, at zero people try to figure out what does that a venture incubator even mean, right? Um, and I think if you just spend any time with Georgie, they're amazing people. They're just, uh, you know, they're full of character and, you know, they saw the dot-com created and they were able to make a giant company during that time period, right? Um, and so I, I think, you know, the, the concept of Red Star, it, it was really to kind of find macro trends um, and do some heavy research in those areas and build companies under that umbrella that really were able to tap into that. Um, and so, you know, early on, it was to help them kind of do research in different spaces in terms of finance and different kinds of companies there in commerce. Um, I ended up starting a company under the umbrella called Lupit, right? Um, Lupit for us was really trying to tap into the concept of social commerce, right? And um, we were, you know, we were um, building tools that actually worked on retailer sites to enable their customers to talk to each other, to help them make decisions on what they were buying. And it was, it was a, I think they built an incredible environment to build companies in and, and like uh, very lucky to partner with them. Does Lupit exist now? Like I always look back and like, oh, that was an early version of X. I, I think it would be too much hubris to say like that, you know, 
I think if you look at Lupin, I think you would say it's a cross between Pinterest and Quora, right? I think would be a, a way to think about it. Um, and I think those were things that we actually try to draw on. I think it exists now, actually now, because I think chat and, and commentary on e-commerce sites between customers is totally present, right? Um, when you buy things on Amazon now, they like mail you afterwards being like, what do you think of that? What's the review? Add a comment to that. A lot of those kind of modalities, interactions were things that we were like on and trying to push, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think the, you know, I think the largest retailer we were working with at some point was actually Target, and that was, you know, a good chance to actually work with amazing group of people there. It was acquired by Nanigans. Acquired by Nanigans, um, ad tech company based here in Boston. Um, you know, at the time when they acquired us, I think they were the largest, um, you know, technology provider for Facebook ads. I think they were running something like million dollars with Facebook ads through the system, right? And a large majority of that being retail. So I came on to kind of bring some of our IP over and bring our team over, but also to bring my you know experience having grown larger teams and larger management teams there. Um, and so I came in, um, you know, under the auspices of strategy. Um, I ended up just doing kind of all forms of, I was just pinch hitting in different forms of management, right? Helping them do kind of executive recruiting, helping them kind of um, retool certain departments and to think about how things actually fit into retail to kind of push further in that industry um, and end up helping out things in BD and Corp Dev as well. Yeah, you know, we just had uh, Carlos Cashman. Oh, yeah. Who uh, was, you know, talking, he was on the podcast and he was talking about Nanigans and how it just, the level of sophistication of what the software was able to do uh, for customer acquisition and advertising through Facebook and other social channels was just amazing. Carlos is cool. He's a crazy guy with a lot of flair. I think it's been uh, amazing how fast he's built this new business, right? Yeah, Thrasio. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I can't even actually fully put in a box, right? Exactly how it all works, but it's been like, uh, you know, I remember him even. We had breakfast, you know, a few years back at um, at I think Henrietta's or something like that, and he was he was just talking about how it was just this. Uh, he's like, well, I'm thinking about this thing and this idea. Like, we have this kind of you know, core business we do, but like, I'm thinking about actually picking up this other, you know, product from one of our customers and running with it. And, and like, it wasn't really formed at the time, but if you look at what they're doing now, it is that business, right? It just scaled out like crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's a super nice guy and, and uh, glad to see it actually you know, getting in the gear. Well, let's talk about your current company, Jellyfish. Sure. So talk about the background story, how you, David and Phil came together and, and details on what you guys are up to. So I think I mentioned earlier, David, Phil and I met actually in 99 at Indeca um, at the basement of the Athenaeum building um, in East Cambridge on First Street. Um, and I, I think we worked very closely together for the first five years of Indeca. You know, we haven't worked together since, you know, 2007 or something like that. So it's been a long time. Right. So I think at the end of 2016, we found ourselves, all three of us available again. And I think a desire to do early stage startups again. We wanted to find an area that actually we, we offered some special expertise to. Um, and so all three of us grown our careers kind of running big engineering teams, big product teams. And we really lamented how hard the jobs were, right? We realized that we went through the different layers that, you know, as companies get bigger, as companies get, have teams that are bigger than 10 people, bigger than 50, bigger than hundred folks, on the engineering team, it just gets really hard to actually go and lead that team. And, and one of the reasons is just there's no data to make decisions on, right? Um, you're sitting there, you know, trying to actually lead this team um, and kind of 
bridge it to the business, but without really understanding what the team is doing, right? And so, you know, looking at this, I'm borrowing David's story, but like, you know, he previously actually was running an engineering Groupon and um, he had, you know, hundreds of people working for him. You know, you'd be looking at the situation where, you know, other departments would have all of these BI tools analyzing everything about the business and you get to engineering and it's still, you know, emojis and traffic lights, right? Um, and, it, you know, it's a lot of just trust me, right? We got this, right? Um, and that means it's a hard job because you're just asking everyone to trust me um, and you're, you're trying to actually just trust the folks that work for you, which is good, but it's not enough, right? And so we very quickly drew an analogy to this is not unlike what sales was like in the 90s when I started my career, right? Um, you know, the, the sales leaders at the time had, you know, their Moleskine notebooks and their StarTac cell phones. Um, and they're saying like, hey, I got 10 million for this quarter. Trust me, I got this, right? Um, <laughs> I got it. Right. And of course, they didn't get it, right? Um, eventually, right? Um, and and then eventually, that ended up being a lot of tough conversations. Um, and if you just look forward 10 years from there, you know, it, it's hard to imagine, but there was a time before CRMs. There was a time before Salesforce, right? Um, but at this point, 10 years after that, like what company doesn't run without like without those things, right? So it's, um, and the CRM helps the business kind of understand like, hey, what does the sales forecast look like in the next couple quarters? Um, what is everybody doing on a day-by-day -day basis? Like, are we doing enough phone calls? Are we doing enough meetings? Are we able to actually look where things are actually moving along? And that's, you know, allowed business to actually accelerate in those functions, right? Because they trust it more, right? It's not just trust me, it's like trust the data. And so we kind of said like, look, this is actually happening in every function in the organization um, as it kind of moves along. So sales went first, um, marketing came along next, right? So Marketo came along and solved that. You could even say things like customer success now actually have platforms like Gainsight, right? And so everything's kind of evolved where every function's become more data-driven and provided more leadership and executive visibility around how the team is doing, right? And so for us, we said, well, like, is there an opportunity here to do the same thing for engineering, right? And that became the kernel of what we're actually doing. And so for us, Jellyfish really is about um, providing that visibility and, and data to leadership um, to understand where the team is actually spending their time, right? Um, and and that's that's a big part of actually connecting the pieces of actually how to grow the business, right? And so that's that was the cornerstone of Jellyfish, and that's actually where we started from. Um, now, in the contemporary version of this, we didn't believe that the world needed another data entry system, right? We're not looking for anyone to fill in a CRM. Um, our belief here is that we can actually pull the data from existing systems the engineers are already using, um, the signals from there, um, and, and use kind of a contemporary machine intelligence techniques to actually provide that visibility without anyone actually doing things by hand, right, is our belief. Right? So that's the kind of um, background story of Jellyfish. And so the company is about three years old at this point. Um, and yeah, like uh, it's been a fun ride. And I think um, it's been cool to actually kind of see us uh, see this come to fruition. Well, you recently announced 12 million in, in venture funding. So what's the current state of the company? Like what's the you know, the, the technology, like how does it actually work? You mentioned that, you know, you're able to pull information from different uh, sources. So, so how does it actually work? Good question. Um, so um, I think you actually asked two questions there. One, which is uh, what's the state of the business? And, and, and you mentioned about our funding um, announcement um, and actually how it works. So let me kind of tackle them in that order. Um, yeah, we've been very lucky to actually have the, the backing of, I think, some some investors that really understand the space um, from the likes of Excel and Wing from out West. Um, and then locally, like the folks at Pillar and the folks at First Star, right? Um, so I think we're very lucky to actually have these folks um, behind us and supporting our endeavors in this space. As far as actually how, you know, the, you know, how this works, um, 
our analysis of this said, look, look, if you look over the last 10 years, we've seen a tremendous amount of innovation for the engineers, right? So the tools the engineers use today are nothing like the, you know, the tools that I used in 99, right? Um, I think everything from cloud to agile to the tools, the CI tools, everything like that, they're just very different systems. But all the systems represent a substrate with which we can actually start pulling data from, right? And so if you look at most companies now, they're running some form of Git, they're running some form, you know, Git, Bitbucket, GitLab, those type of things. All of those things, I think, have been tools for the engineers to actually help them do their jobs on a day-to-day basis, right? All of those systems, though, have APIs now, and they're actually in the cloud, um, and they're able to actually provide data to actually fuel this discussion of helping the leadership understand where the team is doing, right? And all of that data, though, is quite messy. So we come in, um, the team's already using those tools. They don't have to do anything different. Um, we connect to those engineering sig- signals. We also bring in data from roadmap systems, HR systems, Salesforce type systems, um, and we synthesize things for context and 60 picture for leadership to understand just answering simple questions, which is, hey, what percentage of the team is actually working on bugs versus new features, right? Those are seemingly simple questions that I think everyone would say like, oh, every business knows things. But you'd be surprised companies get past 50 engineers, past 100 engineers, actually very hard questions to answer because the teams are all working in different ways and different parts of the product, and it's very hard to answer. What well, is fascinating that you know uh, data drives decisions across organizations, and it's been that way for a good stretch. That the engineering function hasn't had this type of solution. It's just one of those. It seems obvious, but it didn't exist. <laughs> I think part of the reason I think we pose the question to ourselves, which is why now, right? Um, it's your point. It seems obvious. I think we came to a couple of conclusions, right? One, which is, look. I think it's only now that people are actually on a substrate that's actually similar for everybody, right? So everybody's doing some form of Agile today and everybody's using some form of Jira and some form of Git, right? Um, and it just so happens those systems are in the cloud with APIs, right? So that allows the kind of data-centric part of it to be a place where you can actually get the data from, right? On the other side of it, um, I think it is a difficult problem, right? Um, you know, you can't just say like, hey, this person did three commits, so we understand where the business is, right? I think it's a more complicated question to pose. I mean, it requires a more complicated solutions there. Um, the last part of it, though, is that I think it has to do with the market, right? So if you go back 20 years, um, I think if you talk to any venture investor back then, they would say engineering tools, we're going to make a compiler, right? Just because the market was niche and small. I think as we all know now, every company is a software company now. Um, and I think as you know, engineering and software have become more important and hiring has become more difficult, well, then it actually is really important to actually understand how that team is doing and actually how the product is actually evolving in that space. And so the needs actually increase in the last few years as well, right? So that's for us is the why now, why we think we, it's the right time to enter the market. And I think it's a good chance to create a new category here. So in, uh, as part of the announcement of the funding, you, there was also a mention that revenues grew 90% and you've tripled your customer base. So uh, it sounds like, you know, your go-to-market has been successful and like, what's the, the plan in terms of growth moving forward, hiring? So, yeah, I, I think first and foremost, I think we are 100% lucky, right? Um, I, I think this, this situation um, with COVID, I think it's just been difficult for everybody on the space. Um, so I think we're, we're really lucky to, um, to be in a situation where we have been growing. Um, I think, you know, under that umbrella, though, I think, you know, in the situation, I think we're actually becoming even more relevant, right? Um, and I think we're lucky in that space. 
I think as folks go remote, um, I think people need better understanding of how their team's actually doing, and we're enabling the tools to do that. Um, I think as companies go through more pressure around understanding and rationalizing their teams, I think they need more help actually making sure that the, the most important people are working on the most important things and we help them do that, right? Um, so we're really lucky to actually be um, relevant in this time. Um, I think, you know, macro picture, I think we're also lucky that we've been growing tremendously. Um, so I think we're at the beginning of a journey, right? Um, I think, you know, we're at a, a new sector that doesn't exist currently. Um, I think we're probably an inning two and a nine inning game here. Um, and so we are growing into this. Um, we are still hiring, which I, I, you know, I think watching the Boston environment has not been um, ubiquitous to folks. Um, and so we're lucky to do that. And we're continuing to hire through the year. I think we are at the same time being thoughtful and understanding where the market's going to go and understanding where the economy's going. So I think we're, we're um, incrementally hiring um, in, I think, all departments right now. Um, I, I think, you know, where, where 2020 will shake out, I think all of us, you know, across the industry are trying to figure it out. Um, but I think we're on the upward trend on that side of it. Well, what advice would you give to other founders on raising capital? You know, you raised... Uh, you know, funding locally as well as, you know, West Coast from, you know, Excel as, you know, blue chip as you get in terms of uh, investors. So what advice would you give as it relates to attracting West Coast investment capital? It's hard. I mean, we were very conscious around looking for West Coast capital because I think we have strong networks here in Boston. Um, I think we're very proud of our network here. Um, but we also, you know, personally are, are have weaker networks out West as we wanted to make sure that we had you know, folks out there that we could draw on to make introductions for us on that space. And so we're very conscious about doing that. Um, I think in terms of investment, you know, like I wish there was a silver bullet for it, right? Um, I think for us, you know, I often look at this, you know, investment is actually two, a Venn diagram of two things. You're looking for people that actually um, you have some connection to, right? So call that one circle, right? Folks that um, believe in, you know, that believe in you and believe in your experience and and we've had some connections to those investors in the past through um, David's previous relationships. On the other side, you're looking for investors that actually have experience in your sector, right? Um, and because you, you don't want to have to sit there and educate them on what you're, you know, why engineering is an important industry, right? Um, and so if you can find the Venn diagram of folks that, um, that can give you credit for your background and trust in, the, in your background and history, um, but that also have experience in that sector. If you can find that magic intersection, I think that's when fundraising just gets a little easier, right? Because um, you no longer have to spend time introducing yourself um, and building trust there. And you no longer have to spend as much time teaching them about an industry, right? And so things just go faster in that magic space. Now, we started off the conversation by talking about the Indeca alum and how it was a very product-driven group. And that's why it has spawned so many companies. So what, it, what about advice to entrepreneurs on uh, idea creation and you know, what is a viable product to build a business around? I think the, I think there's been a lot of literature written about this, which is, um, you know, first and foremost, find a pain, right? Um, find a pain. It's all a problem. Right. Um, and I think that's, I don't think that should be lost in anyone. If it is, then they should get back to reading some more blogs um, and look for pains. Right. Um, because I, I think otherwise you're just building stuff that no one, no one needs. Right. Um, and I think if you start there, that simply alone, I think it will actually help. Now, I think a lot of the question is like, how big is the pain um, and, and how unique is it that you spotted the pain, right? Um, I think are, are speaking to whether they get to venture scale, right? 
Um, so I think the challenge often is that like, um, if you don't see a lot of things, then you actually come to the same pains that everyone came to. And so now you're fighting with a thousand other entrepreneurs in the world doing the same thing. So it's always nice if you can find a unique pain that, that's very localized to you. And you also want a big pain, right? You want a big pain so you can actually, if, you're, if you solve it, you can make a lot of money selling to a lot of people, right? Um, so I would say to entrepreneurs that like, I think those are generally good ways to think about it. But if they don't identify a pain that they're passionate about, to actually go consider working with other people or another business, right? Um, I'm not saying not to be an entrepreneur, but I think sometimes working for other companies actually can be very helpful, right? Because it does two things. You end up, you know, finding other pains that other people don't realize, right? Either because of the industry that company's in or because internally in that company, the pain that you face doing some other function, you may identify more specialized pain that it might be a, a more unique opportunity. And secondarily, as you work with other folks, you actually build the network. We just talked about earlier this in DECA story. I was there for a long time, um, but I think we met a ton of interesting people. And part of the reason like we have this giant diaspora is that like it was a big company, right? And as a big company with a lot of core DNA that actually we engendered a good culture. Um, but that diaspora are the people that we actually um, work with today, found companies with, hire, get investment from, invest in, right? Um, and so, like, I think entrepreneurs, if you don't see the opening, don't force it. It's okay, right? Um, if you think about it, like, look, over a decade, there's probably only two or three companies that you would have actually made a unique dent on. So if you kind of do the math on that, you really should wait two or three years before you start a company. And I'm being grossly general there. But that means that, like, just because you want to do one today doesn't mean the market will receive you, right? And, and just because you have an idea today and the market doesn't receive it, it may not it may be viable in three years. So I think there's a level of patience there as well. And if it isn't the right time, it's okay. Go do something else and then keep your eyes open and find the right time to jump into it. What's the best way to get like traction, you know, early adopter sales, like you're creating a category. So how did you think about going to market with those early adopters and saying, Hey, with jellyfish, we can help you. So early on, actually, we didn't, um, you know, we we're very conscious of not building something in, um, blindly without actually getting feedback. In fact, we actually called, um, you know, before we started the business, we actually interviewed 50, 60 something VPEs and CTOs to try to help us understand, like, should we build this business? Is there real pain? And tell us about what you do instead, right? Um, through those early interviews, everybody came back to us and said like, hey, um, actually, can you do me a favor and just write up all your notes and just send me the answers for this stuff? And so for us, that meant that like there was demand there because folks were interested in what the solution might be. We didn't know what it was either. We then actually then, when we actually started the company, we turned around and actually called a few of those folks and said like, hey, can we work with you to build this product? We will do by hand your spreadsheets, your PowerPoint decks, all those things. We will do the work for you. Um, just help us get access to your data sources, right? Um, and let's develop this product together. Um, and so for us, that was actually really important for us to develop the product that people actually cared about and used, right? It wasn't done in, in, in just some kind of intellectualized idea. It was like, no, let's solve real problems with folks. And, and all in all, that, that whole time, we knew we were building a, a software platform along the way. But early on, the manifestation was just working with folks as they were going along. Um, and so for us, it was really about just working with them to figure that out. Um, and then, you know, after a little while, then, you know, that core nugget became something that we actually showed to someone else and it became a kernel of a product and eventually became a product suite. Um, and then if you go forward along, there was something you could actually sell, right? Um, but I don't, I don't think we came around early on as saying like, here's the thing, let's just go sell it. It's actually, no, here's a space we want to be in. Let's do product discovery with customers, with partners hand in hand. 
Um, and that became the product that we could sell. So I actually, I really do recommend that as an approach because then at that point, you don't end up in a situation where you spend years building something that no one wants, right? Um, you're building feedback and users from the beginning, right? Um, and, and the core layer from there is it really matters who you choose to work with because they'll lead you to the product. That's great feedback. And it's consistent feedback. So anyone that's listening to the VentureFizz podcast, there's a common theme of what Andrew just shared of, you know, the, the customer, you know, the product discovery piece and sitting down with customers to evaluate the pain points and hopefully uh, work together to provide a solution. Let's talk about, um, like, what's, uh, what, what are you checking out these days? You know, it's, uh, I usually ask podcasts or book recommendations, but, you know, based on the quarantined era, there's a lot of uh, binge watching too, which normally I didn't spend a lot of time doing, but certainly doing a lot more of that these days. Yeah. Um, let's see. The thing I actually have been really surprised watching is actually I've been watching this series called Killing Eve. Um, it's I think it's a BBC show. Um, it's kind of got a little spiness to it. Um, it's I don't know. It's really put together a show. Um, my wife put me onto it, and we've been kind of crushing through the uh, the first two seasons. And now we're actually I think we're now caught up to season three. So now we have to wait for every Sunday for it to come out. Um, it's a cool show. You should watch it if you if it has hit the list. And then the um, the, the other two is, um, which you probably have is I love watching succession and billions. Those are both, I, I think both of those are kind of ironic and they're, you know, I don't think that, well, at surface they're serious, but I think they don't take themselves too seriously. Um, I think they're, they're cool because you know, they're, they're amusing because you can get, you get to watch rich people. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and, um, it's it, like, it touches on some of the people that like, you know, in the communities we run in, as you, you know, touch different investors, there are some of those personalities that manifest in folks. Um, and I think it's kind of a little amusing to kind of see it all play out in those things. And so it's, it, those, those are, those are kind of fun shows to watch. Yeah. I, I, we, uh, my wife and I, you know, we've, we had heard of Ozark, but we finally sat down and watched, you know, the first episode and I'm like, wow, it just brought me right in. And uh, you know, we, we got through all three seasons pretty quickly. It was amazing. So if you haven't checked out Ozark, I highly, highly recommend it. I, I will, I will add it to the list. It was amazing, amazing TV. So uh, you know, we're kind of doing different things these days, but normally outside of work, what do you like to do? Oh yeah. Um, I love to cook, right. Um, I think it's just in my blood. Uh, my, my younger sister is actually a professional chef. Um, so I think we, you know, I, I in that sense, I think the, uh, the quarantine's actually been good because we're cooking right. a lot more. Um, I think the correlator of that is like a uh, unique trivia about me is that I am a Kansas city certified barbecue judge. What? Um, and so, so I, you know, in a prior life, you know, I'd go to, I'd do barbecue judging, but then like in this environment, I'd doing some, I'm actually doing barbecue because um, we're at home anyways. So if I, you know, throw a pork shoulder on for 12 hours, I'm here anyways. There's nothing to, you know, it's a thing. You totally How do. did you become a certified barbecue judge? Kansas City. So, uh, so mapping back to the Indeca story, when I left Indeca, um, I'd been there for a long time and I kind of gave myself a, a mental year to kind of just do things to just do cool, just things I would never do. And so, I mean, at some point someone tipped me on, there's a barbecue judge training class and I pulled a couple of friends, actually Drew Volpe over sure, First yeah. Star, who's uh, an investor of ours and I worked with him in a decade. He actually came with me. He's also a certified barbecue judge. And we went to a training class together and uh, yeah, we, we, we go to competitions together and, and now just, you know, in these days, little kids I don't get to do as much of that, but I get to do make barbecue. Um, so I'm a barbecue enthusiast here. See that, that that's why I love this podcast. I always pick uh, there's always a little nugget of somebody <laughs> that I never knew that I'm like what who would have thunk? So 
Yeah, and then the last bit I think that everyone's doing is a little bit of cliche, but I'm now actually doing the sourdough thing and baking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, all the things at home cooking. <laughs> so making it happen. That's awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through you know, all the great stories of Indeca and of course, what will hopefully be a great you know, pillar company in, uh, in, in the Boston area with Jellyfish. Uh, Keith, thank you so much. It's been great to reconnect and it's a lot of fun. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.